Hello there, and welcome back to F1 after the mid-season break, or as F1 calls it, the enforced shutdown, which sounds very holiday-ish. Before we get into the Belgian Grand Prix show, I've got a quick favour to ask, though. The Strategy Report is having a survey to learn a little bit more about you, your F1-related interests, and how you interact with us. To sweeten the deal, Apex Race Manager has thrown in some prizes you could go into the draw to win. So head over to f1strategyreport.com and hit the banner on the top of the page to fill in the survey. But now, onto the show. Welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Apex Race Manager, the mobile management simulator. My name's Michael Amanato, and on this week's edition, the Belgian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton wins his 200th race, but Fernando Alonso has approximately his 200th retirement of the season. That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. Joining me this week from Motorsport Week is Phil Horton. How are you doing? Uh, hello, I'm fine, thanks. All good here. Now moved on to Italy already, but ready to reflect on Belgium. Only it's already a distant memory, the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, unbelievably, after all that, all those weeks of what Formula One calls enforced shutdown, which is one way of talking about a holiday, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I personally don't describe my holidays as such, but anyway. Uh, and it was a big weekend back because this was a race that was really set up as, I guess, a precursor to this last nine rounds of the season in the sense that this was a circuit that shouldn't have been a Ferrari strength. And a lot of circuits are on the calendar between now and the end of the season are going to have some similarities to this. We all talked about Silverstone where Ferrari, well, they, A, were not particularly quick and B, their tyres exploded. How much of that was a factor in the build-up to the race? You were on the ground in Belgium. What was it like? I think everyone expected Mercedes not necessarily to walk um, the weekend in Belgium but expected them to be quickest obviously with what you said about Silverstone where both drivers were extremely quick and forced Ferrari into taking so much out of their front tyres that they both had late failures and then on Friday we thought oh Ferrari are actually quite quick and then come qualifying Mercedes Q3 mode, Lewis Hamilton on top, Mercedes kind of reassert that authority. But with Vettel second, you still thought it's a lot closer. And the way the race panned out as well bodes extremely well for Ferrari because this was a Mercedes circuit in theory and it didn't quite play out that way. And that's sort of what we've discovered over the course of the race. But it was interesting to hear uh, Mercedes talk after the Grand Prix and after qualifying as well that their car was set up as a little bit of a compromise for race performance. They were uh, running a, a slightly lower downforce configuration, which does make it easier to pass cars and ideally easier not to be passed by other cars at the expense of ultimate lap time. Given that light, when it's a circuit that Mercedes should have already done quite well on, but they already had to compromise their ultimate speed to do so well in the race, and when we say so well, finish ahead of Sebastian Vettel by a little over two seconds, uh, does that... Do you think create a little bit of concern going into this last stage of the season that if Mercedes held that advantage as what we've all been calling, well, the quickest car, just maybe not necessarily on every day, is no longer really the quickest car? Do we have to say now that Mercedes is just not the quickest car by default anymore? It's so close at the moment between both drivers and teams that it's it's difficult to say who's got the quickest overall car because the margins are so small that a little tweak on the setup, a little bit of understanding on the tyres, even the driver performance, if you look at Spa, 
Lewis Hamilton was just phenomenal through that middle sector, whereas Valtteri Bottas all weekend couldn't live with him through there, which is where the, the big margins came. I think it's still going to be circuit-specific that I think Mercedes still had the quickest car on one lap at Spa, but not in race pace. At Monza, again, you'd probably tip Mercedes, but again, you wouldn't know about Ferrari. And then when you look at a circuit like Singapore, that it's that kind of circuit that could define the title because quite openly, Mercedes will go to Singapore knowing that they do not stand a chance of victory unless we get Azerbaijan-style bizarre circumstances. Mm-hmm. So they're already thinking that's going to be lost points. So they have to, whereas Ferrari has been so close to Mercedes on Mercedes circuits, if we look at Monaco, if we look at Hungary, Mercedes has not been close to Ferrari on Ferrari circuits. So that's where the difference has been. It's a good way to put it as well, actually. The idea that the Ferrari, as is kind of what we looked at earlier in the season, is generally the more adaptable, the more usable car, whereas Mercedes does still seem to have those peaks and troughs and we will see how that plays out on a couple of the circuits over the course of the rest of the year but if we turn our attention briefly to Red Bull Racing a car that hasn't really found a home anywhere it's fair to say (laughs) it's obviously very good on the traditionally Red Bull circuits those slow ones but you know still nonetheless only one victory by way of that ridiculous Azerbaijan Grand Prix I thought what was interesting was coming into this race obviously tyres are chosen however long in advance Red Bull Racing are chosen almost only ultra softs but then when we look back as we mentioned to the Silverstone Grand Prix where there were massive problems with some of the tyres, where there's a little bit of a furrowed brows over at Red Bull Racing at the start of this weekend, knowing they had a really limited allocation of tyres other than that softest one. I think Red Bull are heading into every normal race weekend, you know, where there's a a combination of corners and long straights, knowing that they are going to be third quickest, that whatever happens, Mm -hmm. they will be behind the front two teams, but comfortably ahead of the midfield battle. So they kind of have to take a gamble because if it backfires, they'll be fifth and sixth. If it doesn't backfire, they might get onto the podium, which they did in Belgium. And it's, of course, assuming that Max Verstappen's car doesn't literally backfire, as seems yeah. to be the case. Well, and ex- exactly 50% of races now, which is, well, it's a sad statistic. We'll get to that a little bit later on, because going in through to qualifying, I was reviewing some of my notes, and one sentence in particular struck me, which is Williams awful. A, because it's not a real sentence, but B, this is a circuit where Williams, for the last three years, has never failed to get both cars into the top 10 in qualifying. Uh, this year, both cars were eliminated in Q1, it's interesting because they have that class-leading power unit, uh, the Mercedes power unit, which should stand them in good stead at a track like this. And then they have a car that's naturally... Uh, normally quite positive when we're talking about low downforce tracks. Now, yes, one sector requires a lot of downforce in Spa, but you would think at least that that should propel them further up the grid for the rest of the track. But this is a team that really does genuinely seem lost. And if it were not for Felipe Massa, uh, who had a terrific recovery in the race, they'd have had a really, really terrible weekend. I think they are a bit lost because you're, you're quite right. This is a team that 2014 was brilliant. 2015 and 2016 weren't quite as good but still they were there or thereabouts Mm. and then this year with the new regulations they started the year pretty much with Force India kind of leading that midfield but now they've slipped back especially over one lap that I think before Austria they hadn't had a double Q1 exit for three years they've had three double Q1 exits in the last four races and this is Williams we're talking about the race pace is still better as 
demonstrated by how both drivers recovered in um, Belgium, albeit only massive to the points. Stroll picked up some front wing damage at the restart, which did cost him some performance. But even without that, you don't know whether he would have got into the top 10 anyway. So I think they're kind of in this rut at the moment that they've had the good times recently. And with Formula One being cyclical, they're the ones that are just slipping back at the moment. And you've got, you've got Paddy Lowe there to try and dig them out of this hole, but it's it's difficult to see where they go from here other than trying to lead that midfield battle. Before we move on to the race, there's one more team I do want to mention because ultimately their race was kind of anonymous. Qualifying was where it happened for Renault. Uh, Nico Hulkenberg, for the first time of the year, looked like he was being shaded by Jolien Palmer, who, likewise for the first time this year, looked like a Formula One driver until his gearbox gave up. This was almost the moment where Jolien Palmer made it come together. It's obviously a very critical part of his career because, well, there was already rumours over the mid-season he wouldn't be coming back to Formula 1. How desperate is this situation for Palmer now? Because really, if he's going to keep his seat, surely he needs a continuation of everything that happened up until qualifying and not performances like in the race where he more or less did what he's been doing so far this year and, well, not scoring points for one. I think... In a kind of perverse way, what happened in qualifying kind of helped him. Not obviously in terms of position and points, <laughs> but all weekend he'd been the quicker Renault driver. And it was encouraging because you know there's no hiding the fact the first half of the season was horrendous. But at Spa, he was the faster driver. And then when he pulled to the side of the circuit in Q3, there was just this kind of groan of, this can't be happening again. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> Hulkenberg obviously then took the mantle, was seventh in qualifying, sixth in the race. Palmer, I think it's reasonable to assume, would have been seventh in qualifying because he had been the quicker Renault driver. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't know how Q3 would have played out when everyone gives a little bit more from the engine and from the car. And then in the race, obviously, he then had that gearbox penalty. So rather than starting 10th, he was 14th. So rather than already being in a points-paying position, you're sucked back into the midfield. And then from there, just making progress. You know, he's got a Renault engine. That makes it harder to overtake. Maybe he should have been in the points, but I don't think this was a weekend when you can say he didn't score points because of his own fault. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this one was on the team. And that does seem fair enough. Now let's move on to the race because there will be more talk of the midfield later on, in particular McLaren, because as if Fernando Alonso didn't talk enough about it over the race, we can talk a little bit more about it later on. But the fight at the front... Do we uh, do we call it midfield? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating sideshow, but to the main show between Mercedes and Ferrari, Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel were locked in uh, the kind of race I think we haven't necessarily seen since almost Australia, whereby the Ferrari was just on the tail of the Mercedes for pretty much the entire race. Not necessarily any way past, because like we were saying, these two cars are very evenly matched. But what was shaping up to be a strategically interesting battle, because Mercedes blinked first, they rolled the dice first, they pit Lewis Hamilton on lap 12, and then Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari, as if just to beat their chests in the direction of Mercedes, wait two laps, it has no material benefit, he's still less than two seconds behind. Ultimately, we didn't get to see this play out because we had a safety car on lap 30, but... Do you feel like, given the history of these teams that we know where Mercedes does seem to use their tyres a little bit harder, Ferrari had that two-lap offset, 
could we have seen a one-stop race here that Ferrari might have been able to overcome? Or do you feel like this should have evolved naturally towards a, a two-stop race, given that recent history in Silverstone, where the tyres did get a little bit rough towards the end, to say it lightly? I really don't know, because it's it's one of those strange situations where I think at the time we were still thinking, when we got to about lap 26, 27, are they going to do a second stop? My feeling was no. I think they would have tried to do a one-stop, but if either of them blinked, the other would obviously have done a second stop as well, because it would have made sense to do so. Now, the safety car came out, ironically, at a good time for both of them, because post-race Toto Wolff said that they could see a blister developing on Lewis Hamilton's car, and were thinking, do we pit him or do we not? And bear in mind, at that point, I think there were still 14 laps to go. That could have been challenging to do another 14 laps on soft tyres that were already about 18, 19 laps old. So I think it would have been a bit of a push to do a one-stop, but I don't think it would have been completely impossible. I think if one had tried it, the other would have tried it. I think they would have just reacted to whatever the other did. What I think would have been really interesting, and we can kind of see this play out after the safety car, where Vettel had the ultra soft tyre because he had a new set and Hamilton only had a new set of softs, is that given how close Vettel was throughout the race, and given that even though Hamilton had what we can say was the undercut, it didn't really work because the gap behind him to Vettel remained the same and obviously he had no one to undercut, so you can't really call it that. But he didn't seem to gain any pace advantage from pitting earlier. That tyre offset to me feels like had Vettel opted for that two-stop strategy, had he moved Hamilton into a two-stop strategy as well, the advantage almost certainly would have been with him because he had that faster tyre, which like we saw for at least half a lap, maybe a whole lap after that safety car restart, so very nearly uh, won him this race, got him past Lewis Hamilton. That fascinating idea didn't get get to really be played out because ultimately it was neutralised somewhat by there being that safety car restart. And it was so close, wasn't it? I mean, it was really, this was one of those situations where defensive driving for Lewis Hamilton really won him this when any other driver, Valtteri Bottas, for example, wasn't able to keep ahead. I think, yeah, I think Valtteri Bottas is an exceptional racing driver. But in that moment, you can make a direct comparison between him and Lewis Hamilton. Lewis was in the wrong power mode at the restart. So he came across the finish line, not with a comfortable margin, but with enough of a gap that you thought he's all right here. But then Vettel closed up a lot, was too close at La Source, so that when they both accelerated out the corner, Vettel being on the ultra soft tyres got a lot better traction and was so close on the run down to Eau Rouge that he had to back off, slowed because Lewis was only on 90%, which he admitted himself later, kind of tactically trying to back him up a little bit. So Lewis then guns it through Eau Rouge Radion, knowing that he's got the superior top speed, but also knowing that he's going to be towing along Vettel behind him. Holds the inside line, brakes. Bear in mind he's on the hardest compound tyre available that weekend, and he'd been complaining under the safety car that his tyres were cold. Hits his braking spot for Lacombe, absolutely on the mark, and then builds a half-second advantage through the middle sector. By the time we get to the end of the lap, he's eight-tenths clear and won the race already. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Valtteri Bottas, didn't quite do the same thing, positioned his car, I wouldn't say in a peculiar place, but if he held the inside line, he might have got caught, well, he would have got overtaken by Ricardo, but he might not have got overtaken by Raikkonen. So he left himself exposed, braked for Lacombe, couldn't stop the car in time, went wide, by which time he's lost a couple of seconds and he's down to fifth rather than being in third. And it's that kind of difference where you think Hamilton's defensive driving at that point was just exceptional, both in terms of prior to Vettel's attempted overtake and then when they were side by side going down the Camel Strait. 
And ultimately, that's what won him the race. Valtteri Bottas entered the the mid-season on, relatively speaking, a a bit of a high, knowing he was in the championship fight in his first half season with Mercedes. And Mercedes had, with that switch we remember in Hungary, essentially given him that nod of approval, saying, we're not ready to back any one driver. We still think you're in this race. He's now 41 points off the championship lead and 34 points behind Hamilton. And we know coming into this weekend, Toto Wolff seemed to be entertaining the idea that perhaps Mercedes was ready to consider backing a driver is this the time now? Do you feel like Valtteri Bottas is still in this championship knowing that Ferrari is already backing just one driver? I think he is just about still in the hunt. Spa was poor. He knows that himself. He's accepted that. He just didn't get the most out of the car a weekend. 41 points at this stage is just about retrievable. But to play into Bottas's hands, he needs to win at Monza. Or failing that, he needs to hope that something happens to Vettel and Hamilton. You know, a retirement, a collision. Mm -hmm. Because if it's 41 points, say, for example, Lewis and Seb collide on the first lap at Monza, Bottas picks up the pieces, suddenly 41 points becomes 16, Mm -hmm. and he's back in it. If, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. Seb goes and wins, Lewis is second, the best-case scenario for Bottas is his third, and even then it goes to 51. So I think the result of this weekend is crucial, and if Bottas is still... 40 points or worse behind after this next round I think Mercedes seriously have to look at backing one driver because the longer they go on entertaining the possibility that Bottas could catch up in future races they risk losing you know two or three points which could prove crucial I think it was the right thing to do in Hungary but in a few rounds time I think they will have to start um, backing one horse which is why which is what makes Monza so crucial this weekend which is really interesting to consider because it's something Mercedes has never really had to do. It's they're, they're almost inexperienced in this kind of thing. And we've seen at times this year that having had three years of not really racing anybody, occasionally they've made not exactly the, the correct kind of call you would expect a team like them to make. Uh, I wonder what a what a Lewis Hamilton-dominated Mercedes would look like in the sense of, of the team being 100% behind him and, and what effect that might have on Bottas after just one year and still without a contract, it must be said, at Mercedes. Yeah, I mean, I think they have to manage it carefully. I think the team is always willing to try new things, to make mistakes and learn. You know, they've said that the most they learned this year was after Monaco, which was their worst performance. But you are quite right that for the last three years, they were so... I don't want to use paranoid, but so wary <laughs> of backing one driver over the other. Even, you know, there were a couple of flashpoints where one was asked to let the other through. At that point, they never imposed proper um, team orders of keep the one, two, because they knew that for the brand, if they had one driver dominating or one driver favoured over the other, we'd end up with a situation of early noughties Ferrari where people would just switch off rather than, oh, we've got this battle between two drivers. Now, Mm -hmm. you're right, it's different. But I think Bottas knows it's his first year in the team. If they get to a stage where they have to back Hamilton, I think Bottas will be okay with it because it's not like he's walked into the team and been, right, you're the number two driver. So Mm -hmm. I think Bottas will think, right, I've done a good job, not quite good enough. He only just joined in January, so he's not had that full year with the team yet. But I think he knows, right, I'll reset in 2018 and I'll come back stronger. I think he's got the right mindset to do it. I don't think if they say we're going to bat Lewis that it's going to it's going to destroy him or anything. 
Well, that's what we'll wait and see. Like you say, Monza will be an interesting and important race for Mercedes and for the championship. If we look a little bit further down to Daniel Ricciardo, who did finish on the podium uh, yet again, really, almost against the odds for Daniel Ricciardo, it seems to be the way. Uh, It was a two-stop race, as it was for everybody, but that was always really going to be a two-stop race, given that Red Bull Racing, having brought only one soft tyre per driver and not having used it in practice, didn't really seem willing to risk using it, so they committed to a two-stop early on by switching him to the super soft in the middle stint and then back onto the ultras at the end, which was fairly standard for Daniel Ricciardo, given we know he's he's pretty good at saving the tyres and ultimately uh, using those moves on the ultra soft got him past Valtteri Bottas, as we said. But almost getting on the podium is the least notable thing that happened for Red Bull Racing because Max Verstappen suffered another retirement, as we were saying earlier on, uh, from his Renault power unit. Unfortunately for him, all these problems seem to happen in the race when he's in a reasonably good position how difficult is it for red bull racing given we know they've had their issues with red with renault for the last couple of years we know they've had their own cars issue car issues over the last couple of years as well but at very least they've managed to get on top of that we all recognize the red bull car of this year being fairly good once again at this point in the season for them and renault at this point in time we've already heard the sounds coming out of max verstappen's camp about oh we don't know what the future is going to be like we don't know what we can trust how difficult a situation must it be for that team inside now to know all these points and all these just morale boosting performances are gone begging because of something out of their control i think it is difficult because at the start of the year there was quite clearly this optimism that they could maybe compete for the title and then they turn up pre-season the car's not good enough the engine's not good enough and they were completely anonymous you know they accepted they were two and a half months behind where they should have been because of wind tunnel correlation issues But now they're catching up on that front. The engine starts to become the limiting factor once more. And especially in terms of reliability, you know, Max has had six retirements this year, of which I believe three of them have been engine related. And in all three cases, he was running in a good position. You know, Baku, he could have won. Canada, he was second. Then Spa, he was fifth. And then with hindsight, you think, well, maybe he could have been in that podium scrap. So it is difficult. And then where they go from here, I mean, there's no other option but to stick with Renault. They have to hope that with Renault being back as a manufacturer team, there is more effort going into the engine side than there was maybe 2014, 2015. But, you know, we're, we're now into a fourth year of kind of, it's the same platitudes that were coming out in 2014. Okay, Renault are not as far behind as they were that year, both in terms of power and reliability. But you still have that situation where Renault is third best and still suffering from reliability problems. Now, while one of the Red Bull racing cars didn't score because of a failure, a Renault power unit failure, one of the Force India cars didn't score because they took each other out. Uh, And to use Esteban Ocon's words, Perez tried to kill him uh, after their second stops uh, on the run down to uh, Eau Rouge. Similar incident to the one that afflicted them on the first lap, although the first lap was more of a, a racing incident, if we can call it that. But it's gotten, well, it's almost terminal for Force India at this point because we've got... Uh, a whole bunch of team personnel coming out and saying we're not going to let them race anymore. Uh, the idea of, of floating race bans as a potential punishment as well uh, as taking place behind the scenes. They're going to lay down some new ground rules when we get to, to Italy for the Italian Grand Prix. Do you see a future for Force India with Sergio Perez and Esteban Ocon in it? If only six months, seven months into their relationship, it's already so toxic. I think it's very difficult um, to see what they can do now. This is the fourth or fifth flashpoint over the last few months. Mm -hmm. We had Canada where Ocon was on a superior strategy and if they had allowed him past Perez, could have attacked Ricardo for the podium. 
And Perez comes back on the radio and says, no, 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 I can do it, I can do it, give me a chance. Can't do it, by which time Ocon's tyres are past their best. And then they were still, I think, fifth and sixth, but on the last few laps, Perez was very defensive against Ocon, surprisingly so, and Ocon was a bit miffed by that. And then it boiled over a couple of weeks later in Azerbaijan, where they collided, costing themselves third and fourth, maybe even first and second with how that race uh, panned out. And then there's a little bit of a brush on the first lap in Hungary, which is nothing major, but again, just, you know, it happened. And then Spa, they come together twice. Now, it's always going to happen when you get two teammates that are occupying the same place, because if one was half a second a lap quicker than the other, they wouldn't even be in the same territory. But it's the fact, well, there's two things. They're so close, so closely matched that they're always in the same piece of track. And also that you've got a kind of interesting dynamic that for the past few years, Perez has just had the edge on Hülkenberg and they're both at similar stages in their career. And Perez has always been chasing that top drive again, following his disastrous McLaren stint. Now he's got a situation where he's an established midfield driver. Suddenly he's got a teammate who's seven years younger than him. Mercedes backed star on the ascendancy and is trying to assert his authority and you've got this clash of one driver trying to keep his top dog status one almost obsessively trying to prove he's the best driver in the team and it's just coming to a head and what the team does next I don't know I guess the first thing is try and give them strategies to the point where they're not on the same piece of track which was their mistake in Belgium in that they did pit Perez first for his second stop after he had a time penalty Earlier in the race, they serve the time penalty. Perez comes out, does a quick lap or two, Ocon pits, and somehow comes up behind Perez. Now, in terms of team management, that's a very bad piece of strategy because suddenly you've given your younger driver who is ahead what he feels is the inferior strategy to the established driver within the team. And you saw just before the collision, Ocon's going, hang on, what's happening here? And his race engineer trying to say, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, all of that kind of thing. And at that moment, you thought, the way Ocon's behaving, something's going to happen here. And it did. (laughs) So you have one driver being too optimistic, one driver trying to assert his authority or retain his authority, and then the team kind of playing into their hands. So you've just got this perfect concoction of egos, errors, and bad judgment all thrown together. And this is what happens. It is going to be really, really interesting to see how that one gets sorted out because it's almost like a a kind of top team problem in the midfield because they do have two essentially number one drivers, two very talented drivers too. Uh, Certainly Perez, I think, could warrant a top seat if only there was availability there. And Esteban Ocon obviously is earmarked for a Mercedes drive in the future. So we'll keep our eyes peeled in Italy in terms of how that's going to play out and for the rest of the season and possibly into next season if one of them do end up at Renault just because Force India can't bear it anymore but before we wrap up we can't not talk about McLaren and Fernando Alonso in particular because if we talk about strategy in the context of strategy uh, they approached the Belgian Grand Prix or at least Fernando Alonso did really is more of an in-season test which is kind of the way it transpired for them unfortunately given the Honda power unit the least powerful and least reliable in the field uh, this seemed like every like every now and then we have these great, well, I say great, Fernando Alonso races where he's a bit shouty on the radio, he's very unhappy. But we also have occasionally these particularly bad ones where you feel almost a little bit embarrassed listening to them. And this was one of those races. Fernando Alonso's on the next level here of, of unhappiness. Is this a sign that this is the end of the relationship? How did you read the the particularly, I thought, angry behaviour this weekend? And of course, the, the idea that perhaps he just retired his car without there being any problem at all. I mean, I, 
I really don't know. I mean, <laughs> the the last couple of months, you've thought actually maybe Honda are onto something here. You know, they introduced Spec Three in Azerbaijan, raced it in Austria. It was on both cars at Silverstone, where um, Van Dorn almost scored a point. In Hungary, obviously the circuit was going to suit them, but they were their pace was encouraging, if not something to shout about. Come to Belgium. Spec 4 wasn't ready, so we end up with this bizarre situation where one driver's on Spec 3.5 and one's on Spec 3.6. Why <laughs> 0.6? I have no idea. Um, then Spec 3.6 for Van Dorn gets a problem, so he goes back onto 3.5. So he, he's already out of it. He's got 65-place penalty. He's starting at Blanchemont. He's done. Um, but because of that, they then use slipstream tactics in qualifying, which... It's kind of sad to see for a great team like McLaren desperately trying to use that kind of strategy just to get into Q3. But it did, okay, it didn't work, but it did work because even though Alonso didn't make Q3, he was fifth fastest through the speed trap. And interestingly, because he took Puon flat out, it confused the Honda engine as to where he was on track, gave him the wrong boost levels, and then that's why it shut down, stopping him from getting into Q3. But then in the race, I and mean, we know Alonso is very good at the start, so he goes from 10th to 7th. But then after that, it's just a horror show of gradually getting overtaken, mm-hmm. um, not even standing a chance. Then we get the radio messages. He's out of the top 10, then he parts the car saying there's a power problem. We don't know if there was a power problem. Uh, Honda, in their post-race press release, said there was nothing on the data that showed anything. In terms of Alonso, it's difficult because he doesn't have any option inside Formula One unless he does take a gamble with another team. And if we, as we've seen with Alonso, if he does take a gamble, it usually doesn't work. <laughs> so his best option is to stay with McLaren and hope Honda gets it sorted for 2018. But we're now into year three. And yes, they've introduced a new power unit concept for this year. So effectively, we're almost back at year one. But if you're Alonso, you're 36 you know you're still operating at a high level. And if people say, oh yeah, just stick it out for another year, you've had two and a half years of a lack of power where you know the best you can do is in a normal race just outside of the points, especially at a circuit um, with long straights. He's kept his motivation high. He's kept his performing level high. How do you convince him to stay after two and a half years of this? I mean, what do you say to a guy that's won two titles, 32 races, is widely regarded as one of the best of all time? You say, right, stick with it another year and you might get sixth or seventh in some races. I mean, it's why both he and the McLaren team management have a huge decision to make over the next couple of weeks or months. It is going to be fascinating. It's going to be the story of the second half of the year, I guess, second to that championship thing that we've been following so far this year. Uh, But it's a fantastic sideshow, isn't it? It's very interesting. The Belgian Grand Prix was a a fitting return for Formula One after its mid-season, well, holiday slash enforced shutdown and only one week until the Italian Grand Prix and we get the next chapter. And Phil, it's been a pleasure to look back on it with you. Uh, Thank you very much. That was the strategy report for the 2017 Belgian Grand Prix. But if you want to read more about the strategy from this week's race, go to f1strategyreport.com for the pit stop stats, tyre data and Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Spa-Francorchamps. 
While you're there, don't forget to fill in our listener survey to go into the draw for some prizes. Just click the link at the top of the website at f1strategyreport.com. The Strategy Report is powered by the 2017 edition of Apex Race Manager, which you can download for free for iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in just one week when we look back at the Italian Grand Prix.